going to talk this morning about, uh, tell me if y'all see anything at that point, just say, oh, and then I'll know that I've got that. This morning we're talking about St. Thomas Aquinas. And um, who's heard of him? Okay, most everybody. University of St. Thomas here in Houston, it's named after him. Over half of the, uh, of the parochial schools, by that I mean the Catholic religious schools, elementary, middle schools, high schools, colleges, over half of them in the United States are named for him. Over half. This is a fella who is... Um, every. Well, let me tell you this. Um, when you read the first page or two of your outline, if you read them, let me tell you how it came to me. One night I was sleeping, and at three in the morning I woke up. And, and I woke up from a dream, and in my dream I was writing my paper for this class. And I thought when I woke up, well, that sounded pretty good. <laughs> thought, i got to remember that. And then I thought, eh, there's no way I'll remember it. I'll go back to sleep, and I won't any more remember it than the man in the moon. So I got up at 3 in the morning, I got my computer, and I typed out the first page and a half of our class. Okay? Who needs a remote? Thank you. What a blessing. Good job, Steve. Um, so uh, uh, I, wrote it, I wrote it out, and, and here's kind of what I said. You know, there comes an occasion in history when someone lands in just the right niche. They are so talented. They are so incredible. They are so blessed that what they do becomes something that's written down in the books, maybe never to be equaled, certainly always to be honored. It doesn't happen often that there is a Michael Jordan in basketball. It doesn't happen often that there is a Beethoven in music. But every once in a while, it happens. And in the area of theology and the church... St. Thomas Aquinas, 750 plus years ago, was such a person. And here we are almost 800 years later, and we're going to spend, God willing, this class and the next class talking about this guy that lived 800 almost years ago. And so it brings up the question, what is it about St. Thomas that made him so incredible that he has set himself in the history books for all time. I mean, here's this one guy. Let me tell you what he did. He wrote over 60 books. He wrote over 60 books. And I'm not talking little pamphlets. Some of them, if you want to buy them off Amazon.com, his Summa Theologica is going to run you about three or $400 because it's honking big. And multi-volume. This guy writes over 60 of these and he doesn't even live to be 50 years old. Not only that, think about it. That's the New York Public Library. He didn't have a library to go look at to write from. Books were not readily available. It wasn't the kind of thing where he could get on the internet and Google something for his book. And it's worse than that. He not only didn't have the library, 
He didn't have a bookstore where he could go buy books. He not only didn't have that, he didn't have one of those nice click pens that keep writing. He lives at a time where if you want to write something, you got to take it, you got to dip it in the ink, you got to bring it over, you write a couple of letters, and then you take it, and then you dip it in the ink, and then you bring it over, and you handwrite it all. And it's not like he had readily available paper either. He didn't even, this is like pre-big cheap tablet. Okay? The paper's expensive. The ink's expensive. And my son, Mr. G.I. studied Thomas Aquinas at Oxford, wanted me to make sure and tell y'all, technically he didn't write much of anything, he dictated it. I said, well, thank you very much. But someone was taking it down and having to do all of that. Okay? They didn't have an easy way to do it. Y'all, St. Thomas Aquinas dictates and writes over 60 books at a time where it's near impossible not only to research, not only to have access to the material you need to read to write it, but the actual writing process. And then the bizarre part is he wrote stuff that's good enough that other people were willing to make copies so that we've got it today. Because you couldn't just take it and stick it in the Xerox machine. You had to hand copy what he had written. He was born around 1224 or 1225. We don't know exactly when. But there aren't even, the, the printing press, Gutenberg doesn't invent it until 1450. So we're almost 200 years out from when the printing press is even invented. Everything's hand done. Now, he did have a couple of things. He had a photographic memory. Now, the people who were writing back then who knew him, they didn't say, oh, he has a photographic memory because they didn't have photographs. But in our parlance, he had a photographic memory. So that's a blessing he had. And when he was asked, what's your greatest personal gift, he had something that went real close hand in hand with the photographic memory. He said, my greatest personal gift, quote, I suppose it is that I've understood what I've read. Can you imagine the blessing of having a photographic memory and actually understanding what it is you're reading? That's pretty good. And that helps when you don't have Google and you don't have access to a library. So God put into this man not only a place in history and a place in time, but he also put into this man a mind that was truly exceptional. It was truly exceptional. I got to tell you, one of the things that I've observed in life in my 46 years, there are people who truly have talents that God has given them. Maybe it's a voice. Maybe it's of artistic creativity. Maybe it's of diligence and hard work. But there are people who have incredible talents that God has given them who use those to build themselves up instead of God's kingdom. God didn't give you and me the talents. He didn't give you the positions you've got. He didn't give you anything for you to use it for you. Everything we have is for his kingdom and his purposes, right? And the neat thing is, is when you find someone who's so incredibly gifted that they could be blazing everyone away with their own brilliance and instead they use it to serve God. 
And that, more than any other reason, is why, in my opinion, Thomas Aquinas can be called a saint beyond the measure that we can accord any Christian a saint. This was a man who dedicated himself to God and these gifts. Let me tell you a little bit about his life. And then we're going to talk some about what he had to say this week. And next week is going to be so fun. You've got to be here. Next week, St. Thomas Aquinas is the reason the Catholic Church has the view it does on sexuality. Birth control, things like that. Not only the Catholic Church, but St. Thomas Aquinas is the reason Western civilization views sexuality much as it does. Thomas Aquinas is the reason we believe in a just war. And when older President Bush declared war on Iraq the first time around and he gave his public speech and said, this is a just war, he gave the three reasons that Thomas Aquinas gives for a war to be just. Thomas Aquinas' views on government are the reason Thomas Jefferson set up the United States the way he did with our balance of powers. Thomas Aquinas' views are the ones that form the foundation for much of the morality and ethics we have today. And we're going to chart through some of that and how we got there because it's really incredible. It's really incredible. Let's start with his life. Thomas Aquinas, that was not his last name. Okay? He was from a town called Aquino. That was a region, a town. His father was the, the lord of that area. He was like the the little feudal lord. He had the castles. He had the the serfs reported to him. His daddy was like the lord of Aquino. So maybe we should call him St. Thomas Aquino. But then people would look at us real dorky and wonder who we were talking about. For some reason, he's gotten the name Aquinas as far as we are concerned. But that wasn't his name. His name's Thomas. I'm calling him Thomas. Okay? You can call me... Mark of Lubbock. <laughs> then just don't start calling me old man Lubbock. Yeah, old Lubbock was teaching Sunday school this morning. Old Lubbock didn't have a computer working. Um, call me Mark. We'll call him Thomas. We'll all get along. We're going to spend eternity together. We might as well be on a first name basis. Here's where he was born. Aquino, Italy. Um, Rocaseca is the part, is the town that's there now. This is his daddy's kingdom, if you will. Okay? Up at the top, you can barely see it, but up at the top, right up there, are the remains of the castle where Thomas was born. He was actually born in the castle. You can climb up to it and look out and you can see the mountains. It's a beautiful area south of... Oh, you're giving me a remote control... See, this year's just really like turning out all right. It's in the back. Y'all just want to see if I can figure out how to use it. Thank you. Um, it doesn't work, but we got one, baby. I'm all right. Don't worry about it. This family. So, this is the view from the castle. He's born in a castle. His daddy's the king of the castle. His mom's like a, 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 a woman of nobility as well. He's born into this really big-time family. His daddy, you'd call him Count Landulf. That was his father. He was the Count of Aquino. Okay? Now, we've got to understand medieval society at this point. Medieval society in these areas, these are called the Papal States. This is south of Rome. All of this area sort of reports ultimately to the Pope. 
Okay? Society, all these little medieval towns, they have two branches of power. One branch of power is the king, the lord, Lord Count Landolf, Thomas's daddy. He's in control of the serfs. They farm. They give him a part of the farming. He's in control of the locals. But the other, in addition to the local lord, the other part of society, the other arm, the other branch, is the church. And the church has incredible control. It's actually the church. I put up there international church because it's the church that, that is, extends beyond the borders of that local count, lord. Because the Pope is running it. The church has got the economy, if you will. Because it's the church that has the standard of commerce for everything. You've got to funnel your money through the church. The church is like the federal government, in a sense. And the, the, the Lord is like the mayor or the little city. Okay? They work hand in hand. Now, Thomas is the third child born into this family. And look how Count Lundolf does this. Look at what he's doing. He's the local lord, right? That's one branch. Now put yourself in a position of wanting to grow the family's power. What do you need to do if you've got one arm already covered? Take the other arm. You've got to get someone in the church. You need some lord high muckety-muck running the church. How can Lundolf pull this one off? Gee, we've got this precocious, bright son named Thomas. I know. There's this big-time famous monastery that my brother had run for a while. Maybe we can, shall we say, take it over? I don't know, but let's at least take little Thomas and send him to Monte Cassino. If you recall our lesson where we set out St. Benedict... This was his big monastery. This was the monastery. It's just up the road a piece. So at the age of five, Thomas gets sent to the monastery as an oblate, which basically means a monk in training. And it's, hey, Bubba, your job is to go there at the age of five to do everything you can because one day I want you running that thing. And between you running that and us running this, we're going to have the whole thing cornered and we are going to be powerful. So Thomas goes there. And for five years, Thomas studies, and he is blowing them all away. His big question that he's always asking, that the monks just can't get over the fact this five-year-old's asking is, you know, wh wh where is God in this? You know, and, and, and who is God? And, and how does God fit into this? And, and every, every question had God in it. He wanted everything. You know, you, you could be teaching him economics. How, how does God fit in? Where is God in this? And that was his concern. Now, after five years, depending on which story you understand, after five years... Um, uh, Thomas has to leave, either because there was some political pressure going on or some say that he was just too smart for the monastery. So the dad takes him and puts him at the University of Naples. This is actually the University of Naples' main building today. The University of Naples was founded in 1224, the year that Thomas was born. So it's been around for about 10 years at this point. The university system itself has just really started. Oxford started in the 12, in 1200. Uh, uh, the University of Paris, the Sorbonne, Sorbonne, however you say it, 1200. Um, um, this was the time. Universities 
uh, um, get their name from the idea that they teach a universe of knowledge, not just one subject. The monasteries would teach the religion and faith of that monastery, but the universities would teach much broader. They would teach all of the liberal arts, they called them. There were seven of them at that point in time. Not liberal in the sense of liberal and conservative, but liberalis meant free in the Latin, from liber, free. And, and these are subjects that free people who didn't have to work for a living could study. You know, it's like, uh, so when you're a liberal arts major, arts doesn't mean like drawing, it just means a branch of study back then in the Latin artes. So liberal arts, the reason we have liberal arts in college, if you're a liberal arts major or your kids are, or you were, a liberal arts major is just someone who's able to study these branches that really don't have much to do as far as making a living. <laughs> Our son is a liberal arts major. I'm real sensitive. Um, university life is so different there. Not only do you get to study these liberal arts, but you're in a big city. See, those feudal towns, they're small. Each one's built around the feudal lord. And you got a little village that builds up around it. But these are the big cities. Paris, Oxford, Cambridge starts up this century. Um, you've, got, you've got Naples, Napoli is a big city south of Rome. So you've got the big, big city life is different than life in the country. I mean, it's like the green acres in reverse. Okay? It's like the Beverly Hillbillies. You know, then the next thing you know, Jed, move out of there. California is the place you ought to be. So they loaded up the truck and they moved to Beverly. That's what it's like. I mean, this was the big city and the big city life held all sorts of temptations that you didn't have in the little small town where daddy ruled. But the parents sent Thomas anyway. Now, let me also say that at this point in time, Aristotle's just been refound. Aristotle kind of dropped off the scene after Boethius in 600. But the Islam, the Muslims, got some Arabic translations and they'd been studying Aristotle. And so now the crusaders go and they crusade and they come back and they're bringing all this Muslim knowledge and they brought back Aristotle. And the universities and the, you know, brainchild men there and they all start studying it and saying, whoa, look at this, newfangled ideas, Aristotle. Well, they're not newfangled. Aristotle taught them in the 300s B.C. But all of a sudden this new knowledge is being taught in Naples. And who comes into this but Thomas? Now... Time out. Leave all of that university knowledge aside. And let me tell you something that's happened in the church. In the church, while the church has grown big and corporate and money hungry and, and, and has its fingers out and all of the pies, there have been a few folks who've said, time out, this isn't what Christianity should be. And so you have guys like St. Francis of Assisi, who rebels against his daddy's capitalism and all of his daddy's money and says, I'm going to live poor. There was another fellow named St. Dominic who at the same time as St. Francis said much the same thing. And St. Dominic in the early 1200s says, I'm going to start a religious order where we don't own anything, where we'll ask for food. We're not even going to own food. All we're going to do is study and preach. We're going to be an order of preachers. 
and we're going to go to all of the highways and byways. We'll go out in the country. We'll go to the big cities. We're going to go everywhere. We're going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not even riding a horse because we don't want anybody to think that we would spend money doing that when God gave us two legs. We'll walk everywhere we go. And so Dominic starts out with this view of Christianity that in five years grows. He starts out with 16 followers. Within five years, he's got 60 entire convents spread throughout five different countries because it catches on like wildfire. Now, the church isn't real happy about this, and the feudal lords certainly are not happy about this because these city preachers are going to go rural. They're going to go to people outside the church in the feudal system. Anybody who wanted blessings of the church and wanted to hear the gospel had to come into the town where the feudal lord was and give money to him and give money to the church and everything worked out dandy. The idea that itinerant preachers would go out there, man, this, this could cause great economic problems. This, this, is, this, is, this is a danger. That's the view. Not only that, but these guys are, are living a lifestyle. You know, David talked this morning about how people see how you live. And that's a message. These people were no compromise people. They're living a life. It's one thing for a rich guy to stand up and say, give your money. But when someone who has nothing says, I'll give everything, you feel like a real heel sitting there saying, well, not, not me. I, I mean, I, I've got a dollar, but actually it's a five, but I really, I really want to keep it. Okay? I mean, these guys can talk. Dangerous. Not only that, to make it worse, they spend all their time studying. They took a vow of silence. Unless they're preaching the gospel, they don't want to talk. All they want to do is study. They preach the gospel and they study. That's what they do. Now, what does this have to do with Thomas? Thomas is sent by daddy to learn everything he can to take over the church. And Thomas goes to the big city. Oops. And Thomas becomes a Dominican. He takes the vow of poverty, says, I don't want to have anything to do with all this economic powerhouse stuff. Sorry, Dad. Talk about your family conflict. Tommy joined a cult. <laughs> he went off to college and he joined a blooming cult. And the family was none too happy. And the Dominicans sort of picked up on that and said, you know, I think you've kind of finished your studies here at the University of Naples. I think it's time you go to Paris. It's the best university anyway. Why don't you go finish your studies at Paris? And so if we take the map of Europe, by the way, you know, he's walking. <laughs> hey, hike up to New York City. That's Naples, just south of Rome. That's Paris. That's where he's walking. Do you know what's uh, in the middle? His house. His daddy's lands. The family business. So do you know what mom has his big brothers do? Kidnap him. So look, we got to deprogram our boy. He's gone culty on us. He's going to ruin the family business. You know, and he had such a brain. 
Here God put him here to bring us all the power in the world and all the money. And he's wasting it on preaching the gospel. We've got to do something. So mom has him kidnapped by his big brothers. They lock him up in one of the castles the family owns. And the brothers think, oh, we've got an idea. Plan A. You know what plan A is? After they kidnap him, they don't blindfold him. That's fake. And they don't have him tied up. I just couldn't find the picture at four in the morning. They kidnap him and they put him in a locked room with a prostitute. And they tell the prostitute, your job is to rob him of his celibacy because then he can't be a Dominican anymore. So Thomas is in there with the prostitute all night long. Of course, he panics. So he starts praying, but while he's praying, he's taking matters into his own hands. He goes to the fireplace where the fire is and gets the poker that you use to poke the wood. And he holds off the prostitute all night long with the poker. The next morning, the prostitute wanted nothing to do with Tommy. She's saying, let me out of here. All right? And the brothers thought, darn, plan A seemed so good, it would have worked on us. <laughs> but Tommy's always been a bit of a strange lad. We better go to plan B. We won't let him talk to anybody. We'll lock him up in a room. His only companions will be, eh, we'll give him a Bible. We'll give him a couple of books, maybe Aristotle. And we'll just lock him up for a year. Okay, the family didn't understand Dominicans too well because they just took a guy who's taken a vow not to talk to anybody and to spend his time studying and told him, we're locking you up where you can't talk to anybody and all you can do is study. And he's like, thank you, Jesus. So the man with the photographic memory basically memorizes the Bible and Aristotle before the family finally says, eh, we'll find another way to do it. Let Tommy go. And Tommy goes off to Paris. The University of Paris is around this wonderful church that's being built called Notre Dame. And uh, it's not quite finished, but it's pretty close to finished at this point in time. And Thomas goes there first as a student. It's interesting as a student. Thomas, the student, has a nickname. You ready? Dumb Ox. That's his nickname. He's a dumb ox. Not dumb in the sense of stupid. Dumb in the sense of no talkie. Okay? Like mute. Because he didn't talk. He's taking the Dominican vow. He takes it seriously. He's not going to talk unless he's talking about Jesus. So he doesn't have much to say. But one day, a professor calls on him in class and says, I want you to, to defend this very thorny point. And Thomas does so. It's like with such brilliance. The professor has to say, one day this dumb ox will bellow doctrine for the world. Now, Thomas not only becomes a brilliant student, but he becomes a brilliant teacher. He has a 6 a.m. lecture each day that he teaches, standing room only. Everybody wants to hear him. Thomas, the teacher, is teaching Aristotle as well as the Bible. He's teaching ras, ra, reason and logic as well as Scripture. He never runs from Scripture. He believes 100% in every dot and tittle of Scripture. But he also believes that reasoning is important as well and the mind is important as well. So Thomas, the teacher, 
says to his students, we've got a problem. See, all these people are coming back from the Holy Lands on the Crusades. And not only those people, but there are a bunch of pagans. There are a bunch of Jews. And there are some Muslims even living in Europe. And the Muslims and the pagans don't have anything to do with Holy Scripture. If you've got a Muslim and you want to say to the Muslim, accept Jesus, he says, who's Jesus? He said, well, let me tell you. He says, that's not who Jesus is. I've read in the Koran. It tells me who Jesus is. He said, yeah, well, I've read in the Bible. They said, well, I don't believe the Bible. How do you argue? You find a pagan. You find an atheist. And you hand them the Bible and you say, you need to accept Jesus or you're going to hell. They say, I don't believe in hell. Well, where do you think God's going to send you? I don't believe in God. You got a problem communicating the gospel message. Here's a man who's taken an oath to preach the gospel for the rest of his life. How does he preach and how does he teach his students to preach to people who don't believe in the Bible? That's his problem. In his answer, we're going to have to use reason. See, because for him, he'd have loved Francis Schaeffer. For Tom, the, the, the truth of Scripture was real. But if it's true, we ought to be able to figure it out with our brains as well. I think he read Romans 1.19 where Paul says, in essence, the evidence of God is around us. The Greeks have no excuse for not accepting God. What's been true about God is evident in the creation to anyone who will see. Psalm 19 says that, that the handiwork of God is displayed in the sun and in the stars. You see it day, you see it at night. Anyone can look up and see there is a God and understand something about Him. If Christianity is true, it's got nothing to fear from a correct use of reason. Now, sometimes reason's not used correctly. And so Thomas is always quick to say, use the Bible to check and make sure your brain's working right. But he says, we can use our brains with these people. God gives us not only divine revelation, not only does God give us Scripture that reveals for us the truth, and He says, for most people, that's enough. For most people, that's enough. You accept the Bible. You're not really arguing with people who don't accept the Bible. And it's a whole lot easier to understand truths about God and sin simply by looking at the Bible or by asking someone who knows. And for much of us in our conversation, if you and I want to have a discussion on whether or not some thorny issue is right or wrong, the odds are we're going to do it by looking at Scripture and arguing how Scripture applies to it. And he says that's an easy way to do it. He says, but that's not the only way. God also gives us brains so that we can know things. And if something is true in Scripture, we can generally figure out how it's true otherwise. He says not everything. Some things you need divine revelation. He says you can't just use your logic and understand the Trinity. You've got to read Scripture and accept it. The incarnation, he says, I'm not sure I could ever arrive at that on purely logical reasons. But he says, I'll tell you this, when some guy comes up to me and says, how can you believe in a God? He says, if they don't accept the Bible, I'll still have an answer for them. Because my belief is not some blind leap of faith that just says, well, I don't know how, but I'm going to anyway. And you jump off a cliff. He says, I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed to him. I know it. It's something that's not just, oh, I, I, I was born this way. 
St. Bernard of Clairvaux, a hundred years earlier, wrote, or actually he didn't write, someone else wrote it, but he said, I believe, even though I don't understand. And St. Thomas wouldn't let his students get away with that, and he didn't get away with that. Tommy said, I believe and I understand. And so his response to the guy, how can you believe in God, would be, well, let me give you five reasons. And these are the five proofs for the existence of God that Thomas Aquinas set forward. He says, I'll give you five. Number one, the unmoved mover. He got this from Aristotle, by the way. Uh, a uh, contemporary of... of uh, let me say it this way. I send my lesson out for people to read. Any of y'all who ever want to like be critiquing my lessons ahead of time, they generally go out on Saturday morning and just give me your email address. Say, yeah, I don't want to critique it. And I'll let you. Uh, one of them uh, uh, is, is Steve. Uh, uh, and, and Steve, I remember it was you or Mike Taylor, sent me back an email on my lesson and said, you know, inherently as, as, as the Christian that I've been brought up in, in my tradition, there's always a bit of a distrust for philosophers and philosophy. Because so often it seems that it's, it's, it's pagan. And there is a lot of pagan philosophy. But philosophy itself has roots in great divinity. Philosophy as a phrase means, philo means a friend or a lover. Sophos means wisdom. It's a lover of wisdom. Where, who is the source of wisdom? It's God. Go back and read Proverbs 8 about what God has done with wisdom. It's through wisdom He made the world. Proper philosophy. So, so proper philosophy is something that Christians can embrace. We don't need to flee from it. Now, the problem is people don't always use it proper. So, for example, St. Bonaventure, a contemporary at the University of Paris who was another teacher there, would say, hey, don't bring in all that Aristotle and philosophy stuff. You are taking the pure wine of God's Word and you're watering it down. And Thomas responded, dumb ox. He spoke. He said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not going to water down the pure wine of God's word. I'm going to take the water and let God turn it into wine. We're going to steal back from the pagans' rationality. Don't tell me you can't be a Christian and a science person. God made the laws of science. Don't tell me you can't be a Christian and believe in, in uh, 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 medicine. God made medicine to help us with human fallenness and the conditions. You take a bar horse, you take an Adams, you take some of these doctors who help people. They don't help people in a pagan mentality. They do it because they understand medicinal principles that God set up. So the unmoved mover, he stole from Aristotle. Here's what it means, or here is his argument for the existence of God. There are things that can move. Lewis, come here, please. Yeah. I've played Lewis in racquetball. He can move, okay? Now, watch Lewis. Lewis, see? I've just proven to you Lewis could move. Do you know how I proved it? I moved him. He proved it himself 
by his legs moving him up here. Aquinas says, Tommy says, there are things that can move, but nothing moves without something causing it to move. Something moves it. I moved Lewis, or his legs moved him. You can go back down there. See, his legs moving back down there. Thank you. So, if everything that moves has a mover, the mover has to move as well. When I moved Lewis, I didn't do it by standing still, did I? Did I move Lewis by standing still? No. I moved Lewis by moving. But something has made me where I can move. Everything that moves has had something influence it to cause it to move. So where's the first movement? In our world, we don't see... in, In our world, everything we see that moves has something causing it to move. We understand so much more now. We understand even atoms are moving. And electrons around atoms. But something has to cause it to start moving... And if you go back in infinity, somewhere there had to be an unmoved mover. Something that started the first movement. Even if it was a big kabang, something had to start the big kabang. There has to be a mover that itself was unmoved. We call that God. He says, closely related. Different things have, you know, cause and effect. That hasn't been espoused that way yet as a principle, but it's right around the corner and it's a concept. He's got it. And he says, you know, there are things that, that, that have an effect. You don't do something without there being an, a, a cause to the effect. Every effect has a cause. You know, cause and effect. There has to be an uncaused cause. There has to be something that caused the very first effect. Something had to start the snowball rolling down the hill. He says, that's God. Contingency of being. There are beings that are contingent on other beings, on other things. He says, uh, 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 you know, anything that's contingent on something else, anything that's contingent on something else, uh, uh, whatever it's contingent on also has to be a contingent being. So contingent things fold into contingent things, contingent things, contingent things. But somewhere, something had to first start that chain of contingencies that's not contingent on anything else, that stands by itself. That's God. He says, we talk about degrees of perfection. We talk about good. Marcy, you're a good gal. You're a good mom. You know, we've got someone good. Don't get me wrong. She's not perfect. No. David, this morning, our new pastor. He's good. He even said it. But he also said, imperfect. If we're looking for a perfect pastor, we got the wrong guy. <laughs> we'll never find one. Beyond Jesus. But here's the point that Thomas says. He says, the mere fact that we can talk about good and talk about things being better but about things not being perfect, means that there is an idea of something that is perfect. There has to be something that's better than the good we have. There has to be something more perfect than the perfect we have. There has to be something beyond it, or we wouldn't even have those words to use to describe things. 
That's God. That's God. And his fifth one is design. You can't look at... You can't look at this world and tell me this is chance. I'm sorry. I've tried to believe it. I don't believe that you and I are here because of chance. It is impossible for me to believe... I don't care how many gazillions of years there is of eternity. The idea that there is nothing that has brought about this design is ludicrous. He says it defies probability. When you see design, there must be a designer. That's God. Now, next week, we're going to discuss metaphysics. I just love saying the word. Okay? I mean, I got to confess to you, I didn't take physics in high school. Who, who, who took physics in high school? Okay, who did not? Okay, y'all, uh, welcome to my house. I didn't either. I was taking stuff like debate. History. Yeah, I took some history. But I mean, where I was studying history, nothing personal, but never mind. Um, I don't want to upset any coaches. Um, that comes out, doesn't it? Um, we had some incredible coaches at our school that did not need to be teaching history. Um, physics is, is the science of the physical world, the world we see. You see me? You see me move here? That's physics. That's acceleration, mass, force. E equals MC2. You know, physics is the... Ex well, no, not me moving. E equals MC2. MC squared. Well, that's the two. That's up at the top. Okay, fine. I didn't take physics. All right, yeah. Gary's on the email list now to check the lessons. Okay, anyway, physics is the study of the laws of the physical world we see. Meta means after or beyond. Metaphysics is studying the world we don't see. Okay, does that make sense? It's studying, you know, what things really are. For example, what makes... What makes Lewis a human? Well, Aristotle would say, we've got to look at those characteristics that are essential. And by that, he doesn't mean necessary. He means of the essence. Those that are, are essence of humanity. And then there are other characteristics that are just accidental or non-essential or non-essence. So, for example, with Lewis, let's throw it up there. We got essential, we got accidental. All right. Lewis has arms. Does the fact that Lewis have arms, is that what makes him a human? No. I've represented a lot of people who've had their arms taken away. And there's no less human than you and I. Arms, that's just something that's accidental. That's, that's just a, a non-essential thing. But what about the fact that he can think? Thinking makes him human. What about the fact that he can learn things? That that's goes to the core of being a human. What about the fact he can worship God? That makes him human. That's the core of what makes... That's the essence. That's the metaphysical reality of humanity. 
Okay? You know, yeah, I mean, the other stuff like hair. I mean, it's obvious hair is non-essential. <laughs> what, what Thomas says, because you've got to remember, when Thomas is arguing with the Muslim, when Thomas is arguing with the pagan, he's not only arguing about the existence of God, he's arguing about morality. I've got to tell you, if I can't convert all of the radical Islamists in our world, I wish I could at least change their morality and help them understand right and wrong. Whether they will embrace Jesus Christ or not, it is much safer for all of us if they'll at least embrace God's righteousness in their behavior and not blow up innocent men, women, and children. Right? That's the issue he's got. So he's saying, not only how do I persuade a non-believer who won't go to Scripture... How do I persuade them God exists? But also, how do I persuade them what's right and wrong if I can't use the Bible? I know what's right and wrong. I read the Bible. But how do I explain it to them and argue it with them and persuade them? And he says one way, and, and this is what we'll get into next week. It's, it's truly incredible how he lays this out. Because he also says this is how Christians understand what's right and wrong in areas where the Bible doesn't exactly address it. You ask first, what's the object's purpose? Now, we're going to stop here and do the points for home. That's your teaser for next week. Use your brain. If Thomas were giving points for home, this is what he'd say. He'd say, use your brain. Now, he's a dumb ox, so he's not going to have a lot in here. He'd say, God is truth. Don't fear reason and investigation. And that's the way Thomas would do it. I want to do it with Scripture. Because what he would say is scriptural, but let's do it with scripture. Your mind matters. Look at these passages. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test. You'll be able to approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. When your mind is transformed, Next, God and Jesus are truth. I believe it with every fiber of my being. I believe it. Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth. He didn't just haphazardly throw that word in there. He is the truth. No one comes to the Father but by Him. He not only said that, but He said, when you see Him, you'll, or when the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You'll know Jesus. Jesus is the truth. And we, or Paul says, stand firm with the belt of truth buckled about your waist so that you're able to, to, to march the march in Christian armor and fight the fight the Christian way. Truth is, has nothing to fear from reasonable investigation. I am not fearful of my son studying philosophy with the best philosophers of the world. Because my son knows Jesus Christ and he knows the revelation of God. And he knows what truth is. And he will, he will rightly handle the Word of God at understanding truth. And he may convert some of those guys. God may through him. Use revelation to verify reason. See, here's the problem. I've met a ton of people who live based on their reasoning when their reasoning is opposite Scripture. And when that's the case, Tom says, your reasoning's wrong. Your reasoning leads you to scriptural truths. If it doesn't lead you to a scriptural truth, your reasoning is wrong. Examine your reasoning. 
Use revelation to verify your reason because the Scripture is God-breathed and it's profitable for teaching and rebuking and correcting. But not only that, the other side's true. Let your brain, let your reason assist you in your faith. Don't recognize that God is there. Use these arguments. Let it build you up in your faith that you don't have to be an idiot to be a Christian. Christians have the reason to be the smartest people in the world. Because the one who made the mind is my Father and my God who I worship and follow daily, who has revealed Himself to me in Jesus Christ and paid the ultimate price to be with me for eternity. I'm not afraid of truth. I embrace it. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for a new year. I thank you for all the love and support in this class. I thank you for everyone in here. I pray you will convict everyone in here that you can renew our minds, that you can bring us in confrontation with anything in this world. And when we stand upon the truth that you have revealed to us in Scripture and revealed to us in Jesus, we know we're right. We just got to figure out how we got there. And we can through your help and your spirit. I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.